Do you know what life is really like for those who eliminate God from their worldview and uh, then stop to think a little bit about their future? A British philosopher had been a member of Parliament, an author, well-known. By his own admission, life was great. One slight problem. In the middle of it all, I was overwhelmed, almost literally so, by a sense of mortality. The realization hit me like a demolition crane that I was inevitably going to die. Death, my death, the literal destruction of me was totally inevitable and had been from the very instant of my conception. Nothing that I could ever do now or at any other time could make any difference to that, nor could it ever have done so at any moment of my life. In the eye of eternity, a human lifespan is barely a flicker. Death will be upon us before we know where we are, and once we are dead, it will be forever. What can anything I do mean or matter to me when I have gone down into complete nothingness for the rest of eternity? What can it matter to anyone else either when they too are eternally nothing? If the void is the permanent destination of all of us, all value and significance are merely pretended for the purpose of carrying on our little human game, like children dressing up. He wrote very eloquently about his struggle with meaninglessness, the realization that no matter what he did, what success he had, whether he became famous or whether his life was a total failure, None of it would make the slightest difference to me or to anyone else when all of us were nothing, as everyone was going to be, including everyone not yet born. That it could therefore make no difference when I died and would have made no difference if I had never been born. That there was no meaning in any of it, no point in any of it. And that in the end, everything was nothing. He wrote a whole book on that. It was called Confessions of a Philosopher. And he wrote that after all these years of seeking, I am as baffled now by the larger metaphysical questions of my existence as I was when I was a child. Indeed, more so because my understanding of the depths and difficulties of the questions themselves is now so much greater. Well, you know, most people try to just ignore this reality by not thinking about it. But without God, that's the only reality there is. Unless you can solve the problem of death, you have no answer to the meaning of life. Because death is the great neutralizer, the great destroyer. Clifford Goldstein in the Adventist Review wrote, Last year in front of students at a secular college in California, I spoke about the existence of God. I said, you know, when I was about the age of most of you and not believing in God, when something convicted me every now and then that maybe God did exist, I always pushed the notion out of my mind. Why? Because something told me that if indeed God did exist, then considering how I was living, I was in deep trouble. He says the mood shifted instantly. Dozens of consciences in sync started grinding against themselves. It was almost as if the temperature in the room rose from the friction behind all those suddenly uncomfortable faces. 
Every now and then, conscience does come alive for a moment, and we are forced to think, if just for a moment, about the meaning of life. Listen to an atheist. I want atheism to be true, and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope that there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. What an amazingly honest admission. Not many people are willing to say that. You see, God automatically comes with moral implications. If there truly is a God, a transcendent moral power before whom we will stand and give account of our lives, that's a pretty frightening prospect if we don't want Him to be around. And the real reason that evolution is so popular throughout the world is not because of the scientific evidence backing it up, but because it offers an escape from a nagging conscience. Paul wrote about this. Turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. This is nothing new. It existed in Paul's day. It's all around us today. Romans 1 verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. They became fools. How many in our world today fit that category? So much profession of wisdom and so much foolishness. Are you glad today that you don't have to speak the words that I just read to you? Are you glad that we have a reasonable, a logical, a well-based explanation for the meaning of life? Why we do not have to fear the empty void in the future? with the horrible thought that life is meaningless, like children dressing up? And the only answer we have is in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free, free from the law of sin and death. Free from hopelessness. I am covered by the righteousness of Christ, the only righteousness that can ever cover my inadequacy and my guilt. And our guilt needs to drive us to Him. So today, I want to spend a little time reflecting on the one who gives us hope when things sometimes seem very hopeless, who provides a way out from meaninglessness. We can only marvel at what we know about our Creator, the one who gave every one of us life, the one who is higher than the highest heaven 
and came down to be the lowest of the low and suffer the curse that I should have paid. The one who is equal with God, the one who is God, who is the highest and most exalted in all creation, became the curse of sin for us so that we wouldn't have to face that curse. Again, let's open our Bible. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 describes this one who was in the form of God because he was God. Philippians chapter 2 beginning with verse 6. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And that's what we want to talk about a little bit today. What is even the death of the cross? Very few Christians understand what that is. Ellen White wrote this in Desire of Ages, page 25. In Christ, we become more closely united to God than if we had never fallen. In taking our nature, the Savior has bound Himself to humanity by a tie that is never to be broken. Through the eternal ages, He is linked with us. God has adopted human nature in the person of His Son and has carried the same into the highest heaven. He is the Son of Man who shares the throne of the universe. Now, not only did Jesus Christ take that humanity, He will keep that humanity for all eternity. He will be one of the human family. Numerous times while He was here in the flesh, He referred to Himself as the Son of Man. He liked that title, a sign of His becoming one of us. But He had to become one of us if He was going to be our brother to save us and understand us and redeem us. He had to be part of the human family. The scripture that we read this morning is one of the powerful texts of scripture. It says that he had to be fully human in order that he might become a faithful high priest for us so that he can help us who are tempted. Turn with me to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Just a simple verse, but one of the most significant on this subject in all of scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why do we not need other saints and mediators? Why do we not need priests and ministers to get us a step ahead to God? Because we have that mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. Although still divine, he still remains his, retains his humanity, and he will keep that humanity for all eternity. These words of Ellen White become even more significant, writing about the very end of this world's history. 
The End of Sin, she wrote in Great Controversy, page 674. One reminder alone remains. Our Redeemer will ever bear the marks of His crucifixion. Upon His wounded head, upon His side, His hands and feet are the only traces of the cruel work that sin has wrought, and the tokens of His humiliation are His highest honor. Through the eternal ages, the wounds of Calvary will show forth His praise and declare His power. Now let's look back. Let's look back at the time of His incarnation. What does His humanity mean to us? We struggle with our emotions. We struggle with failure. We struggle with discouragement. We struggle with the pulls of our lower nature. Jesus, does He really, really understand? Can He really help us? We're going to look at some texts that might be surprising. Turn with me to Mark, Mark chapter 3. Let's see what we can learn about the man, Christ Jesus. Mark chapter 3. Very familiar story. He's going to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as he did regularly. And there was a man there which had a withered hand. And they watched him, they watched him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day that they might accuse him, not watching to see if he could bring a person back from an infirmity, but watching to see if they could accuse him. And he saith unto the man which had the withered hand, Stand forth. And he saith unto them, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath days, or to do evil, to save life, or to kill? But they held their peace. They're not going to get involved in that little debate. And when he had looked round about on them with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, he saith unto the man, Stretch forth thine hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored whole as the other. And the Pharisees went forth and straightway took counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Good response. Good response. Notice carefully. It says, He looked about on them with anger. With anger. That's Jesus. Now this is not an ego temper tantrum. This is an anger because they were destroying themselves. As the chosen race. As the ones God had brought into existence to bring about the end of Satan and sin on the planet. And they were destroying God's plan and themselves in the process. That angered him. I hope we're angered when Satan has some victories in our lives and in our world. I hope we are not placidly sitting by when injustice takes place. This is legitimate anger because it is for the honor of God and the success of his plan. And please note, the anger is because he was grieved for the hardness of their hearts and their murderous hatred. Let's try another one, just a few pages back. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This time, we're in Gethsemane. And you know the whole story there. Verse 37, Matthew 26, 37. 
And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and very heavy. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, even unto death. Tarry ye here and watch with me. Sorrowful, very heavy, even unto death. In the Older Spirit of Prophecy volumes, volume 3, page 94, they, the disciples, had frequently seen him depressed. That's Jesus again. Frequently, not once in a while, not just as Geth at Gethsemane, but whenever he would go out and do what he could to vindicate God's name, and it would get thrown back in his face. Whenever he would try to make the God's way clear, and there would be violent opposition, or even just ignorance and carelessness, he was depressed. It was not God's way. Satan was having success. Let's try another one. John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This time we're in the Last Supper with his disciples. And he is not too pleased because uh, one of those sitting right next to him would be the agent of his death, physically speaking. John 13, verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. That word, troubled in spirit. That is the very same emotion that the disciples felt when they saw someone walking across the water toward their boat. They were troubled in spirit. I think you know what that was. That's the very same emotion that Herod felt when the wise men came to him saying, Where's this king that you have born? We want to worship him. He was troubled in spirit. That's the word that is being used here. It means anxiety. It means uncertainty. It even means fear. Jesus, remember, had laid aside his omniscience. He did not know what the future had in store except as the Father revealed it to him. And there was uncertainty at times in Christ's life. Now I'm going to share with you just some little snippets, just some very short little snippets from Ellen White's writings to get a bigger picture of the person, the man, Christ Jesus. I'll give you the references too. He had all the strength of passion of humanity. All the strength of our passions that go around and round in us. He had all those. That's in heavenly places, 155. He blessed children that were possessed of passions like his own. Well, we know about children too, don't we? Passions like his own. Signs of the Times, April 9, 1896. The Son of God wrestled with the very same fierce, apparently overwhelming temptations that assail men. Whatever your fierce, overwhelming temptation is, he wrestled, wrestled with that. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 95. He knows how strong are the inclinations of the natural heart. He knows how strong are the inclinations that we have inside us. Testimonies, Volume 5, page 177. How does he know that? He knows by experience 
What are the weaknesses of humanity? And where lies the strength of our temptations? So just think about your strongest temptation. And he knows by experience how that feels, what its pull is, how strong it is, how hard to resist. Ministry of Healing, page 71. Ellen White wrote to her 18-year-old nephew, Jesus once stood in age just where you now stand. He is acquainted with your temptations. His mind, like yours, could be harassed and perplexed. You have not a difficulty that did not press with equal weight upon him. His feelings could be hurt with neglect, with the indifference of professed friends, as easily as yours. Our High Calling, 57 to 59. Think back to when you were 18. Some of us have to think a little farther. Remember your thoughts, your uncertainties, your fears, your questions, your temptations. Jesus was an 18-year-old. He knows how strong those feelings can be. And so we come to that classic text, Hebrews chapter 4. We read Hebrews chapter 2. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 4. The classic text, because of all these things, this text now can apply. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in, ah, there it is, all points, tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And then the next verse, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we realize how fully Jesus became a human being, with our own insecurities and temptations, how well he knows our struggles, then we can come boldly to God because there is someone there who is our brother and he is advocating for us and pleading for us because he knows what we're going through. You don't have to be afraid to tell him anything. He has felt it. He knows. Well, after 33 years of this experience... Then Christ comes to the most difficult moment of his entire existence. Let's read about it. Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Here is our Savior looking into his immediate future. And he's afraid. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. This is Gethsemane again. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He had spent 33 years moving toward this experience. Every bit of his life was moving toward that moment when he would die for the sins of the world and give the human race a second chance. And he comes to that bottom line, here it is, now or never, and he says, take it from me, Lord, I can't go through with this. Take it from me. And I'm so glad for the next words he uttered. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. 
I am going to set aside, he says, my own fears, my anxieties, my terror at facing this future. Because your will has to be done, not mine. Not mine. Ellen White says in Testimonies, Volume 2, page 214, because we've got to ask the question, what cup is he deathly afraid of? What is that cup, that experience that he's afraid of? Testimonies, Volume 2, 214. Some have limited views of the atonement. They think that Christ suffered only a small portion of the penalty of the law of God. They suppose that while the wrath of God was felt by His dear Son, He had, through all His painful sufferings, the evidence of His Father's love and acceptance, that the portals of the tomb before Him were illuminated with bright hope, and that He had the abiding evidence of His future glory. Here is a great mistake. This is what most Christians believe about Jesus going into the cross experience. He knew it would all turn out well. He was going in there with confidence in, the, in, the, in his Father. Everything would work out. That's the, the death that most Christians believe Christ died. But what death is the death that Christ is saving us from? It's not the first death. If time goes on, we will die, every one of us. It's the second death. It's the final death. And what is the essence of the final second death? Friends, it's not burning. That's not the essence of it. It is the unrelenting, hopeless feeling that will come over those who are outside the city of God looking at what they could have been for the rest of eternity. Seeing their friends their relatives, loved ones inside the city, and they are outside, and there is no second chance. There is no one who can help them now. It's all over. They are going to die alone and go out of existence forever, just like our philosopher friend thought we would do at the first death. The hopelessness and the despair of the second death is what Jesus is taking for us. He is dying that unimaginable experience. And so we read Desire of Ages, page 753, the most incredible statement I think Ellen White ever wrote on this subject. The Savior could not see through the portals of the tomb. Hope did not present to him his coming forth from the grave a conqueror or tell him of the Father's acceptance of the sacrifice. He feared that sin was so offensive to God that their separation was to be eternal. Christ felt the anguish that the sinner will feel when mercy shall no longer plead for the guilty race. It was the Father's wrath upon him as the sinner's substitute that made the cup he drank so bitter and broke the heart of the Son of God. He didn't die by crucifixion. He would have been there two or three days if that would have been his death. He died because his heart completely fell apart. It couldn't work anymore. He was under this terrible oppression of the separation he felt from his father. She continues, The withdrawal of the divine countenance from the Savior in this hour of supreme anguish pierced his heart with a sorrow that can never be fully understood by man. So great was this agony that his physical pain was hardly felt. Now think about that. 
Crucifixion, one of the most painful, agonizing death experiences that has ever been devised as a deterrent to any kind of rebellion against Rome. You were literally dying for not hours, but days, suffocating slowly to death. And he hardly felt it. That movie that came out a few years ago, The Passion of Christ, totally missed everything. It focused totally on the blood and the sweat and the pain. And Jesus didn't die from any of those things. He died from the separation struggle with his father. He couldn't see his father's face anymore. He couldn't understand why it was hopeless now and he was all alone. So let's read a little more. We're in Matthew 27. Matthew 27, verse 46. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Ellen White writes in Signs of the Times, August 14, 1879, Doubts rent his soul in regard to his oneness with his Father. Doubts rent his soul. This is the Son of God, the Son of Man, questioning whether he ever see his Father's face again. His anxiety, his uncertainty is real because he is going through the experience of the second death. He is dying the quality of the second death, in which all hope is gone. My friends, our Savior chose death, even eternal death, over life without us. Christ loved us enough to die forever, if that is what it would take to give the human race a second chance. That's the death of the cross. Now there's another aspect that is not fully appreciated sometimes. Where was the Father during all of this? Where was the Father? Manuscript releases, volume 12, page 407. In the darkest hour... When Christ was enduring the greatest suffering that Satan could bring to torture his humanity, his father hid from him his face of love, comfort, and pity. In this trial, his heart broke. The father hid his face from his own son. During those afternoon hours, the father was there, wasn't he? But he was in that dark cloud. And Jesus could not penetrate that cloud with his human eyes. He was there but because of the covenant that they had made in eternity past, the Father must hide His presence from His Son during this suffering. He must not reach out to His suffering Son, for the salvation of the human race was dependent on His control, self-control at that moment. The Father must exercise infinite self-control to control His infinite desire to help His suffering Son. What a struggle that must have been. We all know, I think, that we, if we look on the suffering of a child, would gladly place ourselves into that position to save that child. And the father couldn't do that. The father couldn't do that. Because the only way that the death penalty second death penalty could be removed was by experiencing the second death struggle 
and agony. So the divine love of the Father for the human race restrained his love for his own son at that moment and held him back in the darkness in Christ's greatest hour of need. What pain the infinite heart of the Father must have felt during that whole time. I could reach out to him. I could help him. I could just whisper in his ear, and I can't. I can't. The pain that the Father must have gone through during that experience. We sometimes forget that the atonement is the suffering of the Godhead, not just Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were all purchasing our redemption together. And the pain was in all of their hearts. Only one time in all eternity was there a sundering of the Godhead, a separating of the Godhead. Only once was the everlasting bond between them broken for a time. A separation. In manuscript 93, 1899, it was necessary for the awful darkness to gather about his soul because of the withdrawal of the Father's love and favor, for he was standing in the sinner's place, and this darkness every sinner must experience. The heart of God yearned with greatest sorrow when his son, the guiltless, was suffering the penalty of sin. This sundering of the divine powers will never again occur throughout the eternal ages. And remember, during all this experience, Jesus had choices to make. He did not save himself when he knew that he could call a legion of angels from heaven and walk away immediately and back into his Father's favor and his Father's love. Remember, this is our Creator. Remember that. Never a time when he didn't exist. Never a time when he was separated from the Father. And of course, if Jesus did come down from the cross, the human race is gone. No chance. And you know that as he hung on the cross, Satan was there whispering in his ear, you really don't have to do this. This is not what you should be doing. They don't even care. Look at them out there. They're calling for your agony and death. They like it. You're dying for them? Please. The emotional pain that the Son of God endured from the sense of his Father's frown from the anguish of the soul in the absence of mercy and being unable to sense his Father's presence, that's what literally broke the heart of the Son of God. Simply, he chose death over life without us. That's what he was doing on the cross. He didn't want to be God if we couldn't be with him. That's our Redeemer, our Savior. And that's why the trial of the cross is the greatest victory that this world has ever or will ever seen, and it will be our study for all eternity. How did that really happen? And remember, during all these hours, Jesus didn't have foreknowledge. All he had now was a memory of what the Father had said to him in past years, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He had to remember that every second on the cross. That was all he had. Memory as we have memory. And I'm so glad in Desire of Ages 756 that the story closes in this way. Amid the awful darkness, apparently forsaken of God, Christ had drained the last dregs in the cup of human woe. In those dreadful hours, he had relied upon the evidence of his Father's acceptance heretofore given him. He was acquainted with the character of his Father. He understood his justice, his mercy, and his great love by faith. 
He rested in him whom it had ever been his joy to obey. And as in submission he committed himself to God, the sense of the loss of his father's favor was withdrawn. In the last moment, by faith, Christ was victor. And he could say, it is finished. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the battle was over and the victory was won. One more aspect needs to be considered, and then we conclude. Revelation chapter 15. Please turn with me to Revelation chapter 15. Because of what Christ did on the cross, this text will be a reality for every one of us if we choose it. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. What is that song that these redeemed ones will sing? Let's check it carefully right now. Go way back in our Bibles to the book of Exodus. Moses, the song of Moses and the Lamb. Exodus chapter 32. Things are not going well. They have had a terrible, terrible apostasy. Right in the very presence of God on Mount Sinai. Chapter 32 and verse 10, God says, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee, Moses, a great nation. God is testing Moses right here. He's checking out his leader to see what this leader is really made of. The story continues over in... Um, Verse 31, Moses is pleading with God during this period. Moses is passing this test. He is pleading with God that don't do this. Because if you do this, destroy this nation after you've just given them the law, then the nations around will just laugh and make fun of the God who can't even take care of his people, gets mad at them, and just wipes them out. And here's what Moses says in verse 31. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, and he can't say any more, that's his plea, that's his hope. And then he says, If not, you can't forgive their sin, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. Moses is asking for eternal death if God's name is destroyed and his character defiled, and his plan ruined. See, Moses and Christ share something important in common. Eternal death is preferable to the failure of God's plan. Eternal death is preferable to the failure of God's plan of redemption. The song of Moses and the Lamb for the last generation means what is important is not our eternal life, our hope of heaven, but the vindication of God's name and the success of his plan of redemption. Just like Moses and the Lamb. 
Do you see how this changes everything in our religious experience? No longer is our focus on being forgiven, so we have the assurance of personal salvation. As, in, as good as that is, that's not our focus. That wasn't Moses, that wasn't Christ. Our reason for existence, for being Seventh-day Adventists, is to complete God's plan of redemption, to vindicate His name, His character, by disproving Satan's last accusation against God. Fallen human beings can't possibly obey you even if you provide them some power. They can't do that. Show them to me. They're not out there now. That last accusation that the gospel doesn't have that kind of power. It just doesn't have it. It can't do it. So our motivation, our reason for resisting temptation and overcoming sin is not our hope of heaven or our fear of hell. That's not why we make decisions and we ask questions about what is right and what is wrong. Our motivation for being the remnant and keeping God's commandments is to be the last piece in God's picture puzzle of salvation. The final argument in the courtroom drama that has been going on for 6,000 years to prove that Satan is lying and his way doesn't work. Remember the lie? Fallen human beings who have practiced sin their whole lives cannot obey your law even with your power. That's the lie that has to be disproved. So our decisions about what is right and wrong, both individually and corporately as a church, are not based on what is allowable because of God's mercy and our hardness of hearts, but what will prove God right and Satan wrong. That's why we make decisions. No longer will we ask what we can do and still be saved. Our only desire will be to vindicate God's name. We will abandon forever looking for the minimum necessary to walk into heaven, as I hear, by the skin of our teeth. We now want to know and do whatever will honor our, our God and put Satan out of business. Even after the close of probation, we will have fear and anxiety. We will be troubled in spirit, not about our own salvation, but the fear that something we say or do will tarnish God's name. That will be our fear. My friends, when we come to the point that we would rather be blotted out of existence rather than to tarnish the name of God in any way, written out of the book of life, rather than hurt God's cause, then we will be learning the song of Moses and the Lamb. A song which no other generation of God's people have ever learned because they have never gone through the close of human probation. And there is no mediator in the courts of heaven. They are the ones who follow the Lamb exclusively with no more forays into the land of Satan, either knowingly or unknowingly. And that will complete God's picture puzzle of salvation. And we can go home. So my only fervent wish and hope is that this generation, this generation, not the next one, here and now, will learn that song and complete God's salvation puzzle with no more loose ends, no more pieces that don't fit, every question answered, 
every lie of Satan disproved. Every evidence given that this universe will be safe from sin for the rest of eternity while we still have free choice. That's the death of Christ, the song of Moses, and the Lamb. I want to be singing that song with each one of you and go through that experience. The only way between here and eternity that is open to us who want to be the last generation. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.